if you are in a heterosexual relationship and you're a man, 95% are having orgasms. Whereas for the female counterpart, it's only 65%. So there's a huge gap in terms of who's getting their pleasure in the bedroom. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Heal Thyself. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a show we have for you today. Thank you for joining, taking the time out of your day, wherever you are, in your car, in your home, in your office. No one knows you're listening to the podcast with one headphone in, but we are here, we are together. And check this out. The show is gonna be bomb. What we're gonna talk about, our special guest, Dr. Jolene Brighton. If you've been listening to Heal Thyself for a while, you'll know that she was in one of the first 10 episodes. She's the author of Beyond the Pill. This is for helping women remove birth control from their lives and come back from something called birth control sickness, something that you develop after from your hormones rebalancing. That was an awesome interview. Go back and check that out. But now she's back. And we're going to talk more about the body, specifically sex, sexuality, reproductive system. This is going to be about sex and pleasure with sex, specifically about the clitoris. Oh my God. Something that in medical school we don't learn enough about. Something that society, men and women, don't know enough about. She's going to talk about the science of the clitoris, yes, and the science of sexuality. What things in our life can help us create more intimacy, better sex out there, and how do we follow our hormones? What are our hormones telling us about when our body is ready and open for intimacy? It's going to be a really good one. If you don't know Jolene, she's one of the best at her game. But check this out. If you have nails, if you wear nail polish, in the Knowledge Bomb, I'm going to go over all of the things to look for in nail polish, the things to avoid and the things to add in, what to look for. And in the product review, I'm going to go over the best and worst nail polishes out there. There's so many brands. We got a handful of the non-toxic ones. And I'm going to tell you which ones to stay away from. What brands in particular do you never want to put on your nails? Should never touch you again. This is going to be a show. Get ready, get relaxed, and listen in. All right, everyone, check this out. Number two, the second time. Listen, if you've been listening to Heal Thyself for quite a while, you remember Dr. Jolene Brighton was one of the first, first guests that we had on this show. Now, since then, she's had Beyond the Pill blow up, an amazing book that we talked about, the consequences of birth control and how it affects our health. But now she has a new book coming out, Is This Normal? And we're going to talk all about sexual health, orgasms, clitoris, vulva, relationships, everything in between. Thank you for coming on the show, Doc. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, it's been a few years since yeah. we dropped some really good knowledge gems on this show. A lot of years in between since people were like, whoa, I learned so much. I mean, the birth control thing was crazy, mm-hmm. right? And, and I haven't talked much about it since then. But off air, we were talking about something that really... I, like set me back because I was the like, the conversation well, off air. The conversation off air. <laughs> Should we let them in on it? <laughs> Should we let them in? Let's let them in. Okay. Yeah. What is going on with this orgasm gap? Is there a gap between men having orgasms in a relationship and women having orgasms? If you are in a heterosexual relationship and you're a man, 95% are having orgasms. Whereas for the female counterpart, it's only 65%. So there's a huge gap in terms of who's getting their pleasure in the bedroom. Oh, man. And and now I'm just thinking about how many couples are fighting because of this underlying so much stuff. Yeah. But what is the reason there's such a big gap? Clitoracy. 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 <laughs> and what is clitoracy, this brilliant word? Uh, so um, I did not coin the term 
Um, a, uh, a brilliant um, author came out with a book called She Comes First. I highly recommend mm -hmm. it, but um, I actually have clitoracy on my necklace. My mm -hmm. husband gifted me this for my birthday. So clitoracy is just literate about the clit. Um, so an understanding and knowledge of where the clitoris is, how it likes to be stimulated, and that this is the primary way that women orgasm. So the conversation that we often have surrounding pleasure, surrounding sex, it always like boils down to this like, penis goes in vagina, and that's how sex happens. But the majority of women are not orgasming that way. And so it's about the knowledge of the clitoris and how the female body works. When it comes to clitoracy, I would imagine that most men are clitorate, <laughs> however we want to say it, illiterate in the clit, yeah. of the clit. But a lot of women are too. Yeah, well, so let me ask you, what was your sex education like? Like, what do you remember from sex ed? Just the anatomy not even really the function too much. I just remember seeing these like pictures and I was like, whoa, this is a lot for me. Yeah. I just knew that the clit was the pleasure center where we as a man have to remember where it is or know the landmarks to make sure that we can pleasure a woman. That's so it. They, they taught you that in sex ed? No, well, that was outside of the classroom. Okay, okay. But in sex ed, <laughs> we just saw the anatomy. I was like, that's super impressive. Like, no. where were you? Were no. you in Germany? No, like, right, right, right. They can't right. be here. No, no, no. Those, those were outside the classroom conversations, yeah. whispers, but in just literally just the anatomy. Yeah. So um, a lot of vulva owners do know where the clitoris is because it's a touching, not seeing organ, so to speak. Um, but you're right. A lot of men are not familiar with where the clitoris is because they haven't been taught. You haven't been educated about it. And you think about it, like we're both doctors. Um, if you dive into medical textbooks, you don't find a lot of information. You don't even find a lot of real estate given to female anatomy. It's like the penis goes from on and on every page. We're just like flipping. And then we've got like two pages of um, here's a vulva. And then like, here's one, you know, here's the uterus. And then maybe there's one that like represents a baby, but there's very little attention given to the clitoris. In fact, People will say, oh, the clitoris was discovered in the late 90s. Like, discovered, uh, acknowledged. Mm -hmm. It was actually acknowledged. And that's because what I say in Is This Normal? I have a whole section where I call it the clitoral conspiracy, in which the Gray's Anatomy textbook, they actually took out, they knew all about the clitoris. They had the information, but they took it out, and they basically blinded doctors. So if we're blinding doctors, like, people who should be experts about the body, they don't even fully understand the clitoris, how do we expect the average individual to understand what's going on? Mm. Why the heck would that be removed from yeah. the literature? I know, that's a good question, right? As I was getting into that, I'm like, what? What in the patriarchy is that? Like, what is this? And really, like, what it comes down to is the idea and thought that orgasms for women are not necessary for procreation. Orgasms for men absolutely are. And so... It's that reductionistic concept of like sex is for babies and nothing more. Um, everything else is shameful around that. And I think, you know, there's also like the threat of like female pleasure and it didn't, you know, just revealing this pleasure center like didn't make for the good narrative of like women don't really enjoy sex. Like they're not sexual creatures, which we know from the science is absolutely false. And then there's the other aspect of like Freud, who's like one of the worst things to happen to women's medicine who made the claim that vaginal orgasms are like what every woman should aspire to, like they're, they're the, the end all be all, and that clitoral orgasms were just very infantile, and that's not what you should, you should aspire to, which was just another way of centering male pleasure in this conversation. 
You know, skincare isn't just about looking good, right? A lot of us want to look good, but it's not just about looking good. It's about nurturing your skin and being well-balanced from the inside out. And, you know, this world is flooded with a bunch of harsh chemicals that are really insulting our skin, our barrier. And you want something truly effective that is safe. Alitura is one of the best in the game. If you never heard of Alitura, you just think of, you might've seen some uh, black bottles with gold writing on it. It's one of the best. And they're always at health events and people are loving them. And their quality. Alitura Naturals has crafted a serum that is not only safe, but also incredibly effective. Listen, a lot of you ask me where I get my glow from. This is a huge part of the equation. Their gold serum isn't just another skincare product. It's a testament to the power of natural healing and a commitment to holistic health. It uses organic ingredients like jojoba, olive, rosehip oils, and the gold serum is made organically with plant-derived vitamin A, not synthetic stuff, not that nasty stuff that you're getting in a lot of these over-the-counter products, GHKCU, and marine collagen to revitalize your skin. Alitura Naturals has been using the best ingredients in their products for years. They've been pioneering the path for what truly transformed skin should be. So if you're ready to take control of your skin health and experience the pinnacle of natural beauty, I highly recommend checking out Alitura Naturals. For a limited time, you, the Heal Thyself listener, will enjoy the exclusive discount, just the Heal Thyself discount, only for you. That's 20% off of this gold serum. Go to alitura.com and use the code DRG for 20% off. That's A-L-I-T-U-R-A.com and get that 20% discount. It's amazing stuff. I use it every night before bed and I'm telling you, I'm on fire with my skin in a good way. Check it out. It's been a long time since I promoted a coffee because there's not that many good coffee brands. We got one of the best ones now on Heal Thyself. Are you ready to elevate your coffee game? An experience of proof that's not only delicious, but it's also health focused. Let me introduce you to Purity Coffee. You heard me review them in one of my first ever coffee reviews as one of the best, and then my second ever one as one of the best. And it's one of the best still. It's an ultimate choice for coffee lovers who, who prioritize taste as well as well being. I'm gonna tell you what makes Purity Coffee stand out from the crowd. Every step in that process is rooted in health focused principles backed by solid scientific research based rigorous testing. They use the finest specialty-grade organic Arabica beans and then move on to small batch roasting, ensuring that each cup meets the highest standards of quality. But what really sets Purity Coffee apart from all the other coffee brands is their dedication, is my favorite, is their dedication to purity and safety. Their beans undergo third-party testing to ensure they're free of pesticides, toxins, and harmful mycotoxins, those pesky substances that can wreak havoc on your health, causing issues like liver and kidney damage, digestive problems, brain fog, and fatigue. Purity Coffee also has some of the highest antioxidant capacity. And this is important because we have to understand coffee is actually really good for us when we're getting quality coffee. And the reason it's good for us and ensures so many benefits, especially heart health, is because of its antioxidant capacity. Purity has one of the highest antioxidants that you're going to find in coffee, giving you a powerful dose of healthy boosting compounds with every sip. Purity Coffee is grown on regenerative organic farms that prioritize soil health, animal welfare, and community well-being. They have certifications by USDA Organic, Rainforest Alliance, and Smithsonian Bird Friendly. You can also trust Purity Coffee is not only good for you, but also good for the planet. They have a range of roasts from their light medium roasts with sweet fruity notes and their dark roasts with rich bold taste. So to try out one of my favorite coffees in existence and one that I recommend to everyone still to this day, I've been doing it for years, is Purity Coffee. Go to puritycoffee.com and use the code DRG for 30% off of your first purchase. That is P-U-R-I-T-Y-C-O-F-F-E-E.com and use the code DRG for 30% off of your order. So we got a little background on, on how we got here, right? Because yeah. there's so much mystery. <laughs> it's funny that I say mystery, but it's like so much that is not taught or mm -hmm. so much of the gap. Yeah. How is that affecting female orgasm? Is it that 
men aren't aware of their bodies, women aren't aware of their bodies, we're not uh, knowing exactly what to do in the bedroom mm -hmm. that is creating more or lessening that gap? Well, one aspect is that there is a lot of pressure on men. And I think this doesn't get talked about enough. Like men are expected to be like stallions and go forever and they please women and I'm a womanizer and like all, all of these right. things that society tells men to be, um, which then doesn't lend itself to like the humility to ask the questions. And um, you're just kind of fumbling in the dark, in the dark, so to speak. So there's that component. There's also that whenever sex is taught, like most people, you know, they have a concept of like, When's the first time I had sex? That equals vaginal penetration to them, which I have a whole chapter in the book called Sex of All Kinds, where I detail like, here's all of the different ways to have sex that doesn't, it isn't just, you know, this traditional sense of like what you've been taught. But because that's so centered of like, you know, even the word foreplay, foreplay is sex. But what it denotes is that it's not enough. Like you may orgasm, everybody may be satisfied with foreplay, but even in their mind, they're like, well, that was foreplay. I have to like, there has to be penetration for us to have sex. And so it's this whole concept of how we're raised to be shameful of our body, how we're raised to have a very myoptic perspective of like what sex is. And that type of sex is not the sex that makes women orgasm. There are some women who do orgasm with vaginal penetration, but the vast majority, they need clitoral stimulation. Mm, I understand now, which is why Freud just really shook things up <laughs> in the worst of ways because yeah. changed the consciousness around how to approach sex and sexuality. Um, all right, so let's say we want to close up this gap a little bit better, understand uh, the full expanse of clitoracy, mm -hmm. right? What are some of the things that we need to know right now about the clitoris that uh, people aren't bringing more awareness to or just even literate on? It's huge. Okay. <laughs> so that's the first thing. So often people think like, it's just this little nub, like it's a pea-sized structure. That's the external clitoris. It actually has an ascending body, and so it's just like my hand, and then it dives down and becomes this wishbone that expands outwards. So it's a very large structure compared to what we used to traditionally think. And so the clitoris can be stimulated externally or it can be stimulated internally. So that I think is one of the first things to understand is that you know there's a clitoral hood. So there's a lot more under the hood um, than you may even imagine or think is going on. So that is like the first thing. It's a large structure. The second thing is to understand that the clitoris and the penis are the same tissues from embryonic development. So when we were babies, we started off phenotypically, so babies as in embryos, we started off phenotypically female. And so based on the chromosomal combination you got, if there's a Y chromosome in the mix, and everybody thinks like XX and XY, but there's more combinations than that, mm -hmm. friends, um, your Y chromosome may have responded to the washing in of testosterone, and that took you on a deviation. You just detoured. You're like labia, clitoris, not so much. We're going to go scrotum, testicles, penis. Mm -hmm. And so the penis and the clitoris, well, we were talking clitoris over here before, the clitoris and the penis, those are the same tissues. And so if we in our minds can understand that stimulating a penis is how we make a man orgasm, then it's not so hard to be like, yes. So stimulating the clitoris is how we make a woman orgasm. And to understand, so the third thing is that clitoris only serves the purpose and function of pleasure, and that's it. 
Just like a penis, it gets engorged when it's aroused, it expands and it swells. But unlike a penis, it's not having to pass urine or ejaculate. So it gets to be more sensitive. Mm, and it is more sensitive. Mm-hmm. More, more nerve endings there. Yeah, so there was just that study. It needs to be replicated. But it was the end of 2022. Um, the first time ever we actually had a human study on a human female body that showed there was 10,000 nerve endings. Everything before that was based on cows. The estimates for the female body of a human was based on the cow, and everybody spouted it off like fact. This is how far beyond, like far behind we are in medicine alone, let, let alone as a society of understanding the clitoris. Wow, unbelievable. So it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> we, we, we got our definitions from a cow. Um, is there anything else that we, we can learn about the clit that has just been behind a veil? Yeah, well, I think, you know, understanding that, you know, from the, like, media perspective, right, like what we see in movies and all these things, that's not the way that most people like to have their clitoris stimulated. Um, I don't think people talk enough about, like, like what are the how-tos of stimulating a clitoris? Right, right. And the other thing is that you need to ask your partner because we've got science. So we've got very little science in women's health, um, but comparatively, when we talk women's sexual health, it's like, yeah, you got to go digging. There's very little. But what we do understand is that the majority of women, they like a circular motion or a back and forth rhythmic motion, medium pressure. So not like Goldilocks, right? Like not too light, not too hard. Um, and with that, um, that is a good place to start, like mm. for everyone. But as you do that, asking your partner. And I think that's the thing we're not given language around of like, how do you have that conversation? Like people, people are having sex, right? And they're like late teens. They're already feeling awkward about their body. Or maybe it was just me. Um, and hmm. then it's not until like their 30s, 40s. Like I have patients who are like, I didn't start having good sex until like my 40s because I finally understood how to communicate about my body to my partner and ask for what I want and not feel ashamed or feel like I should be performative. Like I should be um, making them feel good at the expense of my own pleasure, which is why we have like, you know, these stats of like over 80% of women have admitted to faking orgasms. Mm. And it's so common, right? So common. And yeah. unfortunately, something that we've gotten used to as a society because there's so little that we understand or there's so little, even in science, about the female body, about sexual pleasure. Okay, so let's say, let's go into the orgasm now. Mm-hmm. Lot of, let's take a ride. Yeah, a lot of, lot, <laughs> right as we go into the orgasm. So a lot of people, they're saying, okay, the orgasm is the most nourishing, healthy, mm-hmm. healing thing in the body. It is medicine in itself. Yeah. Would you agree with this? Yes. Do you want to live long and prosper, friends? <laughs> like, do you want to have a very healthy, long life? So it's not just about, like, longevity and getting to a finish line. It's about having, like, great brain health, orgasm, check. Great heart health, orgasm, check. Combating the effects of stress and like trying to age backwards, orgasms, check. Like what don't they do? It's in fact like one of the best things that we can be doing for our overall health. Like there, every system of your body can benefit from this because of the hormones that are being released, the things that are changing. The fact that like having an orgasm alone requires an act of mindfulness. You have to be present. And I think this is something that um, people sometimes take for granted, like how it can be such a struggle to even be present in sex because of just the way our brains are trained overall to be like scanning the environment, thinking about this, like 
marketers have been telling you like something's wrong with your body. Maybe you should think about that while you're having sex. Yeah. So it is an act of mindfulness. As we know, mindfulness is like incredible for the nervous system. It's incredible for your overall health. And this is like one capacity. It's almost never talked about. Like you like do them, like people are like, meditation, mindfulness, why would I want to do that? Like everybody talks about that. Do you want better sex? Do you want great sex? Do you want mind-blowing orgasms? Like do the work outside the bedroom mm. so that like you do less work to get what you want in the bedroom. Mm. So as we create more mindfulness, it helps us in the bedroom just have a better experience first of all. Absolutely. But better orgasm. Mm-hmm. So so many women are faking orgasms yeah. or, or they're not even reaching orgasms. Is a part of this not only just not understanding mm -hmm. the clitoris, but also what you're alluding to, our lack of presence, our lack mm -hmm. of connection, our nervous system not feeling safe yeah. in a situation, even in sex. Yeah, so you know, when we look at the research of why do women fake orgasms, it's the number one reason is altruistic deceit. I don't want my partner to feel bad. I want my partner to feel good. I want to make sure that all of these stereotypes society has placed on him don't break him and that he does feel like that stallion in the bedroom, yeah. right? Sometimes it's a like this, I gotta get out of this, this is painful. I still want it to be good for my partner, but this is painful, I need it to stop. Other times it's like, this is so bad, like there's no hope for this, there's nothing I can say. Like I don't even know where to start here, like I just need this to be done. So. Yeah. There are different reasons, and none of these reasons, because sometimes when I share this, people are like, women are so deceitful, and I'm like, but it's an altruistic deceit. Like, you have to actually think, like, they do it for you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's about you. It's another time in the bedroom where it's about you, not them. So there's that aspect of it. The other aspect, so there's needing to be present, and I think it's really easy to be like, we're disconnected from our bodies, um, which there's some truth from that, but what we often, you know, fail to recognize is all of the ways society has impacted women in terms of like the messaging, like you shouldn't have cellulite, that's unattractive. You shouldn't like mm -hmm. all these body image issues, right? Body image issues, those can block you from getting in the mood. You can be aroused. Then you can start this phenomenon called spectatoring, where you literally like step out of your body and you're like, oh God, what does my body look like in this position? Like, do mm. I have roles? Like, oh my God, can like they see my cellulite right now? Like. I'm like always assuring patients, like anyone who's lucky enough to have sex with you, they do not care. They are not looking at those things. Um, and yet that's a common phenomenon, fear of pregnancy, especially in our current political climate. If you, even if you're like, you ha you're like, I have an IUD, like that is locked down. Like that's 99.9% you know, effective. That 0.1% could still have you worried. And so these kinds of things, they, we're, we're just like running this in the back of our mind and then it pops from, to the front of the mind. And so instead of being present with like, what does this feel like? What does this smell like? What does this taste like? Like being with your senses, you go into like, oh my God, like, freaking out about this, thinking about this, like worrying right. about this. Um, if you're someone who's worried about um, being walked in on, so it can be an environmental issue, right? And you've got kids and you're like, oh my God, did they lock the door? I don't know if the door's locked. Oh God, okay, like what's gonna happen if my kids walk in? How would I explain that? Now you're running this other narrative rather than being present. And so that can definitely contribute to all of this. Um, and the last thing I would say is that there's a big, there's a lot of stigma around masturbation. And so women, they receive this narrative. Men hear it as well about women. 
Women are not sexual creatures. They don't, it's very hard to make a woman orgasm um, and that they're just not that into sex. And then there's the shame piece of like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't experiment with my body. I shouldn't understand what I like. I shouldn't be masturbating. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't give you the opportunity to really understand what works for you. If you understand what works for you, it's so much easier to like, you know, be basically like air traffic control, like directing the plane, like yeah. helping them understand. That's well said. That's absolutely true. And I see that so much, so, so much. And building that understanding of like, okay, it's coming from an altruistic point, these mm -hmm. faking of the orgasms, but also how much not only a man is in his head, a woman is in her head too. Mm -hmm. You know, totally just diverting from a present moment of like, yeah actually a spiritual, you know, a spiritual experience. Um, when it comes to the masturbation piece that you said, did you ever come across the research that it's healthy until a point? Should women masturbate until a point? Is there a certain amount of times per week? And men, did you ever see anything per times per week where you go, but this is too much because your prostate's going to fall off or your <laughs> clitoris is going to fall off? Anything No, it's fine. really good for the prostate to actually be discharging. Like, that's something mm. that... Um, Every like no nut November, like I feel like I, you know, the the parade comes out of like don't masturbate, it's so bad for you, and yeah. then like here I come with like and science, like <laughs> actually it's good for you, it's not gonna wreck your testosterone, your prostate loves this, it's gonna be very healthy, yeah. um, and so. When it comes to like the, the there's no good science, there is really. Um, poorly executed science that is influenced. Uh, it's just like dirty science, right? There's like a lot of money being made in the sex addiction, masturbation addiction, like that, that porn addiction, that kind of arena. And when you look at the studies that are like, this is negative. I mean, one that, that all of these, um, I mean, in the biohacking community, I've heard it in I've seen it in all the like no nut in November. They're like, it ruins your testosterone. That study was retracted because it was not a good study. Uh. And because there are these people profiting who are contributing to these studies, wanting these outcomes to happen. And so um, in terms of like masturbation, what the research has shown is that a woman who's masturbating in her relationship reports greater sexual satisfaction with her partner. Like a woman, and this is like whenever I have actually presented this at conferences and people are like, wait, what? Um, so one thing I'll say, men have a shorter refractory period. So they have an orgasm and they may not be able to ejaculate again. Some men can orgasm again, but it's just not going to be the same because um, basically they go through these sexual phases and they're, they're like, I'm done. Um, I cannot keep going. Whereas women they don't have that. They have short refractory periods. They can have multiple orgasms. So when it comes from the male perspective, they're like, if she's masturbating, she's like using using up like her orgasmic potential, right? And like, I, then I'm going to miss out on that. And so sometimes it comes from that perspective, but people really get blown away when I'm like, if she's masturbating, you're doing a good job. Like she is satisfied. So, and not only are you doing a good job in the bedroom, you're doing a good job helping her feel safe in her environment, helping her feel supported. Like she's feeling good in her relationship overall. And I think that's fascinating research because so often masturbation is vilified, using sex toys is vilified. It's like, you know, all of this stuff is really framed from like, it's gonna do damage and harm your body. But we actually see a lot of benefits. Um, when it comes to solo sessions, the, the benefits uh, in terms of what we see with the hormones, 
they're good, but they're like, but in some research, it shows partnered um, sessions actually have even more benefits. Mm. So it is something to like, you know, it's, I think there's something to like that intimacy and that connection that we're just not measuring well in science as of yet. Just yet. But yeah, we'll, but we can we'll get see. there. <laughs> We're going to get there. Maybe uh, Dr. Jolene runs a study and then we see everything. <laughs> that, and, and that's beautiful because it, it's also back to your point of um, foreplay, right? Or mm-hmm. all different versions of sex, like a mutual masturbation together is, mm-hmm. is also a beautiful moment. Yes. You and can it's have with your partner. such a great tool in certain circumstances where like, Maybe you've had surgery, maybe you're pregnant and you're like, you know, for whatever reason you can't have sex. Maybe you're early postpartum and you're not cleared for sex and you're like, it's still healing down there. But you feel, you're like, I am in the mood and this feels confusing. Like you can have a mutual masturbation session if you're not at a place where things are healed. So there's a lot of situations where like this can be deeply connecting and it can help your partner understand what you like. You know, when it comes to overall health, the little daily habits can make a huge difference. Take flossing, for example. Seems like such a minor thing, right? But taking good care of your teeth and gums does way more than just prevent cavities and bad breath. Emerging research shows that it can actually support whole body health and may even prevent cognitive decline as you age. That's wild, right? That's why I'm really excited to tell you about this awesome company called Slate and their game-changing three-in-one electric flosser. It's the only product out there that flosses your teeth, massages your gums, and even scrapes your tongue to remove bacteria to promote fresher breath. I've been using the Slate flosser for about a month now, and I'm hooked. Unlike regular floss picks that you have to jam into your mouth, this electric flosser does all the work for you with 12,000 sonic vibrations per minute, really cleaning out them gums. The innovative gum sweeps Give your gums a gentle massage to increase circulation too. And let's not forget the built-in tongue scraper to help zap bad breath at the source. So to start one of the easiest and healthiest daily habits with the Slate Electric Flosser, go to slateflosser.com and use the code DRG to get 10% off of your very own flosser. That's 10% off of your easy-to-use Slate Electric Flosser at slateflosser.com slash DRG, S-L-A-T-E-F-L-O-S-S-E-R.com. And the code is DRG. You know, living a long life is great. It is. We all want to live longer. But what's even better is living those years in good health, right? Free of the chronic diseases and the ailments. Unfortunately for many, the gap between lifespan and health span is way too wide. And we spent our last years ill, not enjoying our life to the fullest. And that's why I'm always into research-based products, quality supplements that are coming out to you, the highest, the best of the best, some of the best rigorously tested supplements. And one of my favorite companies across the board is Momentus. And they have two that I use every single day creatine and collagen. These are the two powerhouses at work. I've been open that I've been working out more four times a week. I'm lifting heavy weights and these are staples. And I, and not just me, I think everyone should be out working out, building muscle, staples to muscle repair and muscle growth. But what sets Momentus apart from the rest is its clinically researched formulas. For the collagen, it delivers 15 grams of collagen, supporting your body in various ways. And it's not just one type of collagen, it's all the types of collagen, right? A lot of companies just have one type of collagen. You want all the types of your body's absorbing and utilizing this collagen the way you desire the body to use it. But boy, oh boy, the gold standard for working out, if you're not on this, 
You don't even have to be working out. You can use it for your brain. It's creatine. Momentous creatine is fantastic. There's no fillers, no additive, pure, effective ingredients you can trust. It trusts everything when it comes to supplements. Momentous third-party test. There's no surprises. What you see on the package is what you get. So if you're like me, you want to feel your body with the best of the best, go to livemomentous.com and use the code DRG for 15% off of creatine and collagen and all their top-notch products. That is L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com with the code DRG for your discount. So let's talk about then libido. Mm -hmm. This is this I, I see a lot in, in couples. Yeah. One's got a fire libido yeah, through yeah. the roof, sometimes a woman, sometimes a man, and the other one's dropped down, you know, just dragging in the sand. Mm -hmm. What are, I, I know it's so many pieces to libido. Yeah. But what do you see mostly that people are presenting with? Why are people dry? Is it as we get older? Is it yeah. vitamins, minerals, hormones? What's going on? Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying it can sometimes be men and it can sometimes be women because the um, archetype of society is that men are always ready to go and women are like always really like that cold fish. And if you are the opposite, then there's something wrong with you, right? And in right. fact, both states are normal. And so when we look at... So when we look at sexual desire, you're right, it's really complex and so many things influence it. But this mismatch... One is I, whenever patients are like, it's, you know, we, we're, we're different. He wants it all the time or she wants it all the time. I'm not sure what to like do about this. And I'm like, what if you both wanted it all the time? Like, how would you leave the house? Like, have you ever considered that like, maybe mom and nature knows what she's doing here. But um, so what's been described in the research is that there is what's called spontaneous desire, which is kind of that like sex on the brain. Like I can, I can get in the mood like really quick. And then there's the responsive desire where I'm like, you really, things got to get going for things to get going. And so you can have these different archetypes and there's nothing wrong with them. The responsive desire people, they're usually described as a low libido. For my purposes as a physician, I don't really care how it compares to your partner, to your neighbor, to your friend, to anyone else. I just want to know, has that been your normal through life? Hmm. And if it has been, then that's your normal. If you find that you know, my, my libido was like much higher. And then like I, you know, ended up like starting an SSRI and now it's low. Okay. Like that's a change. That's interesting to me. That can, that, that's not normal. Cause you've told me what your norm has been and now it's not normal. We've got a drug like come that's, you know, we know can just squash sexual desire and sexual function altogether. In other times it might be like, I had a child and now I have no libido. And it's like, well, how are you sleeping? What's your stress like? Are you still working? Like all of these things can negatively impact you. It has nothing to do with your relationship. It just has to do with the fact that you are a complex biological system serving the environment. The environment's not safe. Your body shifts the hormones to say, no, no, not tonight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I love that to think about it that way because we are complex. Mm -hmm. We can't just be like, you know, this this is just me and woe is me and I'm never going to get fixed. There's, yeah. and there's reason for everything. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Think back. How was your libido 5, 10, 15 years ago, yeah. right? Maybe it wasn't the same when you were 18, but maybe in the past three years something changed and mm -hmm. going back to that. There's a lot of libido supplements on the market. A lot, man. right? Yeah. You go to every store, you go to a gas station, you're going to see libido stuff, Yeah, gas stuff, stations. Right? What are you doing in the parking lot, What are you everyone? doing in the parking lot? <laughs> so most of these supplements just you know, throwing something at the wall and being like, let's see what sticks? Or mm -hmm. are there some actually good stuff for libido that can help support us? You know what was really surprising is saffron. The research on saffron, I'm like, this is why this spice is so expensive. Ah, um, they saffron know the secret. can help, and it can help in instances when you're on an SSRI. 
And that serotonin is basically like, naked is so you can't have an orgasm, naked is so you don't even want to try to have an orgasm. Saffron's been shown to be helpful. Um, I don't see any supplements with saffron. Um, but that is, I'm like, I'm always like, let's start with food first. Like I have a supplement company and I'm still like, let's just start with food first and mm -hmm. see where we can go with that. Mm -hmm. When it comes to um, some of these supplements that can help, like maca, it can certainly help. Um, you know, there's like all kinds of herbs that can be helpful. Um, you can also get, uh, you know, nitric oxide enhancing supplements. Mm. So all of these things can certainly be helpful. Um, interestingly enough, uh, watermelon rinds, instead of throwing them out, maybe try to pickle them. They have citrulline. Mm. Those can be helpful. So these things can be helpful. However, I will say, if there are relationship issues, no amount of supplementation is going to overcome that. And it's so much easier to try to fix your hormones. I mean, it's easier to fix your hormones than try to like work on a relationship because anyone who's ever cohabitated with another person, it's complex. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot of things like, there's like, how is your relationship with your parents? Like, what did you see in their relationship? Like, what were your past relationships? Like, there's so much just like as an onion to like peel back in yourself and then to do that with a partner. And then you're like, and now we come together. Yeah. Like, and we don't have tools around that. And so... If those things are going on, that you're not working on those underlying issues, there's no amount of supplements that are going to put you in the mood. It's the same thing where, you know, people will come to me and they're like, I think I need testosterone. I think testosterone is my issue. I should get testosterone replacement therapy. Then I'll have a libido. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, I actually give a quiz. And it's, it's perfect for, like, especially the perimenopausal phase, which is, like, starting around age 35, which is when a lot of women will be like, Some, things are changing in terms of my sex life. Um, where you can assess your testosterone and you can understand, is it low? Because it's not usually an issue of like just a low libido standalone. You're also going to be probably more prone to cry. You're going to feel like you have a harder time, like, you know, holding boundaries, like waking up, kicking ass. Like you're going to be more fatigued. You're going to find that you don't put on muscle mass the same way or you're losing muscle mass. So um, you're going to have a constellation of symptoms. It's not going to be just like, I have a low libido and everything else is fine. And yeah. so... That's part of why I put that quiz in there to understand. If you're on birth control, probably a testosterone issue because of what the pill specifically does to our testosterone. And it's well understood that like birth control is related with lower sexual desire. Um, if you're on an SSRI, like I said, that could be an issue, but it could be a really serious issue not to be on that. So you shouldn't, from this interview, just jump off an SSRI because I'm like, that is something that affects sexual desire. Talk with a doctor. They can sometimes lower the dose. They can switch your medication. Other things can help. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is that if you are in menopause, it could be a testosterone issue, even in perimenopause. And why I said like the quiz is like especially great for that phase is because you can't really test very well some of these hormones yeah. because they're just changing so much every month. Like one month it's like, oh yes, you're clearly like in perimenopause. And the next month it's like, no, those ovaries are still trying. They're still trying. And so it can be a very confusing time. I mean, the quiz can be used at any stage of life, but I think that's one where it's like, as physicians, we go a lot more off of symptoms than we do with lab tests when it comes to those cyclical sex hormones. For sure. I love that. We got to take that test. Yeah. I feel like as a man, I want to take that test. <laughs> uh, so, so you got this book. We, we talked about sex, mm -hmm. orgasms, Cliteracy, which is a big, I love this new word. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe it hasn't been in my, my total uh, library in my head right now. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the libido. What else are we going to be expecting in this book? What else can we, we, can we dive into? 
So the book is divided into three sections. We've mm -hmm. got your sexual self. So straight out the gate, first chapter, sex. What's normal, what's not? Right. And I walk people through all of that. And like the top questions that I've gotten from patients, readers of drbrayton.com and on my social media. So we go through your sexual self so you can understand. And that's like what everybody wants, right? They're like, I just want to understand like my orgasms. Um, I want to be able to understand my libido, like all that good stuff. Then we move into your cyclical self. And that's where I start talking to you about all of your hormones. And so I've got a chapter just on the menstrual cycle, a chapter just on periods. And because people always want to meld those together, I'm like, it's really good to mm -hmm. understand the differences. Um, and we go through, in. so the third section is we go into a 28-day plan. So 28 days because that's the myth of the menstrual cycle, but how we're all taught is that menstrual cycles are 28 days. As it turns out, very few people, statistically speaking, are having exactly 28-day cycles, and that's normal. But I do the 28-day framework to take someone through their cycle and understand how to optimize their hormones through each phase of the cycle. And then they're doing exercises to understand their sexual self in relation to those hormonal mm -hmm. changes and to figure out what their normal is rather than just operating under the mode of like, you know, this is what TV told me was normal. This is what, like, I saw in a friend's relationship. This is what my past relationship was like. Or this is what sex ed said. Like, truly understanding what's your normal. Yeah, because I live with a woman. <laughs> She's my partner. And I see the flow. I, I can already tell what hormones are moving up and down yeah. and left and right, right, throughout the month. Um, do you believe that there's space for a woman to go, okay, this is about the time of the month where I don't want to plan a thousand activities, mm -hmm. ten podcasts a day, where I'm well, actually me? just gonna, yeah, <laughs> where I'm actually gonna just just kind of like be inward. Yeah. It, 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 do you do you see that the hormones actually reflect that? Okay, here's a time that you got to take it easy right now. Yeah. So in that late luteal phase is where so wait people need to understand the luteal phase. So that comes after ovulation. So you ovulate. That's um, really one day you release the egg, and after that, a temporary endocrine structure called the corpus luteum is made in the ovary, and that's the only way to progesterone. And progesterone takes you through the luteal phase as the dominant hormone. Estrogen should be taking a backseat, but she's like such a diva um, <laughs> that sometimes she just pushes her way through. So with that, though, progesterone, as you get into that late luteal phase, like you'll start to slow down. You'll feel a little more tired. You'll want to feel like you're, you know, you're going a little more inward. Um, and that is something I think it's important for women to understand. It's optional. There's people out there that are like, you have to do this. You have to do that based on your hormones. I hate that kind of rhetoric. It's just as problematic of being like, you have to operate in this 24-hour yeah. cycle as a man. I'm like, you have to listen to your body and honor what's your your truth and do what is best for you. Because, you know, on, on one hand, it's like, yes, this is the time when most women want to go inward and they're resting. On the other hand, uh, you know, U.S. soccer team kicks a winning goal. That gal was like the day before her period, got her period the next day, like right. totally kicked <laughs> ass. So it's like, women, you're capable of doing all the things at any point in your cycle. Mm -hmm. But it's also for you important for you to just honor those changes and to just ask yourself, like, do, do I, is going out, like, what's, you know, really resonating with me? Is this, like, in my best interest right now? Mm -hmm. Or would I do better off to, like, stay at home and read a book, like, mm -hmm. or just chill? Or maybe you're even feeling, like, really creative and you're like, I just want to stay home and make space so that I can be in my flow. Like, whatever it looks like for you, 
honoring that is what I think everyone in society should be making space for. I think um, we didn't need a pandemic to get this work from home life. I just think we needed women in charge because they would have been like, yeah, work from home, make sure, like, yeah, take care of yourself, make sure, like, I mean, even Spain now has period leave. They're like the first country that was like, yeah, if you're on your period, like, you can take a couple of days off and every single month, like, just take care of yourself. And I'm yeah. like, why are we not doing this? And it's not just, I mean, people, I've had people argue with me and be like, well, that's unfair to men because they're not bleeding every single month. And I'm like, no, men should get mental health days too. Like, yeah. I like all around, everybody, you get you get some self-care days. Yeah, we do need them. We do need them for sure. Yeah. Okay, so we got this cycle going, right? When is the, do you, when you were researching, do you notice that pretty much across the board, this is when a woman is most ready, her libido's on fire. Yeah. And she's ready to go. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you when it is in my house, but in your research, yeah. what have you been seeing? Okay, so I love that you're like, I can tell when it is in my house because that is everything. Men are always like, why is she into me one moment and the next moment she like <laughs> wants nothing to do with me? And I'm like, that's progesterone. And progesterone is literally like, you know what? I would rather get into some sweatpants than get into their pants. So like, right. let's Netflix and chill with Ben and Jerry's. Like, let's just like, yeah. because... And people might be like, progesterone, you're the worst. Uh, it's awesome because if progesterone's right, you're going to feel more chilled out, calm, connected to your family, in love with your partner. Um, so you're just going to, like, you're going to need more of the foreplay if the goal is to have vaginal penetration, or you're just going to need, like, more of a warm-up time. Maybe then the, instead of the average 14 minutes, you're going to be looking at, like, 20 minutes. Nothing wrong with it. Totally normal. And you're going to probably need loop. It's, like, the driest time of your cycle because mm. you've passed ovulation and your hormones are, like, you had a chance. You had a chance to get pregnant, and that chance is over. So what do we care about getting in the moon? And this does not matter what your sexual preference is, who your partner is. If you have ovaries, they have an agenda. <laughs> this is their agenda. Right. So in terms of, like, when are women most in the mood? Well, what's interesting about that is that... Um, there was research I came across. They named this phase the sexual phase. They're like, there's, there's this window of about six days that we should call the sexual phase. I actually loved that because I was like, it doesn't center reproduction. It centers women as sexual beings, like women having like, you know, robust sexual health rather than what most medicine does, which is just like, you're, you, what's your reproductive capacity? Like, you having babies, you're not having babies. Like, a lot of us don't even want to have that conversation at various stages of our lives. And so when I was looking at this, they were talking about like, oh, when the LH spikes and all this stuff, and I was like, that's the fertile window. What they're talking about is the ovulatory phase. And so that is, so, uh, Let's back up. What is LH? So LH is luteinizing hormone. It's a brain hormone that goes to the ovaries and is like release the egg. It does this in response to estrogen rising. So the ovaries are maturing a follicle, their follicles, and they're going to pick their winner um, to release an egg. And when it's ready, it's going to release estrogen. Estrogen goes to the brain. Brain says luteinizing hormone, like release the kraken, and now we ovulate. So what happens is that rise in estrogen, testosterone's rising as well, that's gonna make us lubricate, so women are gonna feel like that's the wettest time of their cycle. All right, let's face it, with all the toxins we're exposed to nowadays with processed foods, pollutants, and even stress, our poor livers have been working overtime. If you've been feeling sluggish, bloated, or just overall rundown, 
it may be time to give your hardworking liver some extra love and support. That is where Organifi's Liver Detox comes in. This convenient little capsule contains a powerhouse blend of clinically studied superfoods. This convenient little capsule contains a powerhouse blend of clinically studied superfood ingredients specifically designed to remove excess toxins and improve digestion, promote healthier energy levels, and just overall liver health. Now, one of the key ingredients is artichoke leaf extract, which has been clinically proven to help detoxify the liver and digestive tract. Then you got the all-star liver protector. You heard of it, milk thistle, an herb that has been used for centuries to give your liver a big old hug. That's not all. Organifi's liver detox also contains dandelion root, one of my favorite ones of all time, which is loaded with vitamins and minerals to promote healthy liver function and digestion. And finally, Trophalia, an ancient Ayurvedic formula packed with antioxidants that has been traditionally used as a powerful liver tonic, one of my favorite ones too. So whether you're dealing with sluggish digestion, low energy, or just want to give your body's main detox engine a little extra love, Organifi's Liver Detox has your back. Just take one to three capsules at any point during the day to start supporting your liver's natural detox pathways. All of us need to be supporting our liver. If you want to experience the energy boosting, liver supporting effects of this fantastic formula, head to OrganifiShop.com and use the code DRG for 20% off. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I shop.com slash DRG. They fantasize more. So sex is on the brain at that point. They might be in the grocery and they're just like, ooh, look at that magazine. <laughs> or they're just like driving in their car, having a sexual fantasy. Orgasms, they, you're more likely to have multiples at that phase of your cycle. It's easier to achieve an orgasm. And we also know that getting aroused, so getting the clitoris engorged, that's gonna be easier as well. So sexual desire, arousal, orgasms, all of it's up. And it corresponds with the lifespan of sperm, which I think is interesting as well. And so this happens about three days before the LH spikes then LH spikes and the A gets released about one to two days later. So that gives us that six day window. If your A gets released after 24 hours, then you get a five day window. I'm sorry, that's mm. just biology. But it's interesting because when that egg is released, it has 24 hours to meet up with sperm. You cannot get pregnant after that point. Mm -hmm. But that sperm can live five days. So during that sexual, your body is like, again, ovarian agenda. It is like, we are going to get pregnant. Yes. Um, and that's like really the goal. But what's really cool around all of that is that, so everyone always thinks like, oh, testosterone, that's what's about libido. But estrogen is really important mm. as well. It's also why um, we can maintain the vaginal ecology we have. So the microbiome of the vagina, it depends on the sugar that's produced uh, from the vaginal cells. That depends on estrogen. So estrogen's helping with that whole process. So the cells are plump, they're happy, and the lactobacilli are fed so they maintain that pH that keeps bacterial vaginosis at bay and keeps yeast infections at bay and keeps all the tissue really healthy. Mm. Man, we just had a crash course. I feel like I just did a master class now. <laughs> it's like, why don't they teach this in yeah, sex ed, right? Yeah, I know, I know. I, but it's funny, you brought me back to school and I was like, whoa, I haven't talked about this stuff in quite a while. Yeah. So it was nice coming back there. Um, when it comes to uh, birth controls, we, we were talking about early on, there's a lot of people who do natural birth control, mm -hmm. the natural methods. Are they are they foolproof? Mm -hmm. uh, Will will we be getting pregnant if we do the natural one? Because there's a lot there's a lot of people say, hey, I just got off birth control, and I don't know what to do now. Yeah, from you, who's written literally the book on birth <laughs> control, what should we be doing? So, 
When we talk about the natural methods, what most people mean is fertility awareness methods. Some people are like, oh, you mean the rhythm method? No, the rhythm method is based on a concept of like, just based on a calendar, everybody ovulates the same day. Right. It does not work that way. Um, so everything we talked about with is what the premise of fertility awareness method is. So sperm's gonna live up to five days, egg lives one. You wanna be monitoring fertile <laughs> cervical mucus. So you're gonna have this discharge change. I have a whole chapter on discharge, by the way, to help like decode your discharge. So you're going to have the fertile cervical mucus change. You're going to see that your libido goes up. These are all signs that you're entering in the fertile window. And then to add an extra layer that really takes the efficacy rate up is measuring your basal body temperature. So the second you wake up, thermometer under the tongue, you can measure that. I actually wear an aura ring and it integrates with natural cycles and app. Mm. And so I don't do anything. I like just tap an app in the morning and it's and I just like go brush my teeth. I go on my merry way. I don't do anything else. It's like the best thing ever. I'm like, mm -hmm. you don't have to put a thermometer in and, mm -hmm. because that has to be done at the same time of day and um, you can't get up and do anything else. So those are sometimes problematic in making this method, uh, you know, having having that efficacy that is on par with the perfect use of the pill. Now, what is problematic, the other thing that people will call the natural method is the pull-out method. Mm -hmm. And that has a high failure rate. About 20% of people using it become pregnant in a year. It's very high, right? And when it comes to birth control, you have to like weigh like what's going to work best for you and what risks are you okay taking? And some people are okay taking the risk of like, an, you know, not planning on getting pregnant, but whoops, it happened. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that those conversations are being had. Often when I hear fertility awareness method failed, I got pregnant, I ask like, well, what were you doing during that fertile window, during your sexual phase where you were like, I'll abstain, but your brain was like, ha ha, nice one, um, we are not abstaining. What were you doing? They'll often say, oh, well, we were just doing the pullout method. I'm like, you were not doing fertility awareness then, you were doing the pullout method. And you had an awareness that you should be pulling out at that time, but what you really needed was a barrier or all the other kinds. So, Mutual masturbation, friends, like right. other kinds of sex. Right, to, and that adding in those other types of sex could be really powerful at, as a form of birth control in itself, right? Yeah. Because it doesn't always have to be about the penetration, going back to what you said. Absolutely. But, but really encouraging for people, for couples to hear this because, you know, we, you could just put on a ring, yeah. right? And sync it with the app. And then you just look at your phone and be like, oh, uh, I feel like I can get pregnant now. Now's yeah. the time. This is what my numbers say. Um, super cool because you know, I read the book. I know what goes on, birth control. I mean, it's, it's really tough on the system and yeah. even worse when you're getting off of it. Um, so as we near the tail end, is there anything that is on your chest that you really want to mention or, ex or Gosh, express? We have covered so much. I'm like, what, what have we not talked about at this point. Um, I do. I just really do want to reiterate, though, that I think we, as women, we're charged with, like, one of the most difficult things ever, and that is, like, accepting that our body is normal just as it is, just as it is designed, that it doesn't need to be, you know, cut, clipped, augmented in any way, and that we're challenged with that, like just embracing and loving ourselves in that way, and then getting naked in front of another person and becoming extremely vulnerable. And I don't think that we really give enough credit to how vulnerable you have to be during sex and what a challenge it is to have that level of vulnerability in a world that is constantly telling you that you're flawed in some way, something is wrong in some way, and that you're not normal. And so, I want women more than anything to understand that 
Normal is a spectrum and it's about understanding what's true for you and honoring that. I love that. Thank you for that. I feel empowered as a man even hearing <laughs> that. Um, uh, your book comes out when? April 4th. April 4th. And how do people find you if they ain't following you right now? Yeah, so Instagram, TikTok, uh, YouTube, Facebook, at Dr. Jolene Brighton. And then my main hub is drbrighton.com, which has a ton of free resources, so lots of articles to understand. You know, basically, if you've got a hormone problem, I will help you solve it and show you exactly what to do about it. And you will, and you got all the resources. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next time you're all the way up in California, let's do number three. Yeah. We'll give it like a, like a few months or a year, and then we'll go <laughs> right back at it for your next one. I appreciate you. I love you. it. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, everyone, here we go again with some nail talk. We're going into the nail show. This is part two. If you don't listen to part one, go back to the Clement Lee show. The last one before this, we go into gel manicures and I go over if they're safe, what my concerns are, what the evidence is, and my recommendations. But this today, ooh, we're getting into nails, acrylics, and just nail polish in general. I'm gonna tell you the things to look out for and how to safely buy nail polish for yourself and for your children onwards. But that show was so powerful. I put a lot of work into it. I really nailed it. It's my dad joke. Okay, so today we are zooming out more macroscopically to nail polish. This is a very important topic because people love expressing themselves through nails. In this episode, I will review the quick history of nail polish, what it's made out of, what points of concern I have for nail polish, my opinion on acrylic, and then we'll move to the product reviews, which ones to stay away from and which ones are the best. Now, when it comes to nail polish, a quick internet search reveals some interesting facts. Nail polish has been around for a long time. Seemingly invented in India in 5000 BC, it was actually a dye that was used and it was an expression of art and social status, but also brides wore it on their wedding day. It was a symbol of art and beautification, much like today. So super fast forward, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, and we come to the early 1900s, and that's our first official nail polish when it was invented. Gel and acrylic was said to actually have been invented by dentist, Dr. Fred Slack in the 1950s, after he actually broke a nail in his lab and formulated a replacement in his laboratory, an acrylic replacement to take care of his nail. So now his nail was whole. So ever since then, you know, fast forward 30 years, then the acrylics and gels really became popular and a lot of people were using them, but it was really coming from a dental lab. I found that very interesting. Now, what is it made out of? Let's break it down like this. General non-acrylic nail polish, what are the key ingredients? All nail polishes need a film-forming polymer. That's the basis of it. And most nail polishes out there use something called dissolved nitrocellulose. For acrylic, it's methyl acrylate monomers. You don't have to know the science of it. You don't need to know the molecule, the specifications, nothing. Just a little background on it. Now, the solvents, it needs to be in a solvent because that's how it's sticking to the nail, is oftentimes called ethyl acetate or butyl acetate. And that's what actually gives nail polish its characteristic scent. I remember I had one of my aunts who would always wear nail polish. And every time I would go into her room, it would just be a huge whiff of nail polish and chemicals that would just take over my face. So I always knew what nail polish smelled like at an early, early age. And actually, a lot of these natural, non-toxic nail polishes are going to use a solvent like this. Most toxic nail polishes, and I say that meaning the ones that we want to watch out for have these chemicals in it called plasticizers, and that's what keeps the nail polish from cracking or chipping. And these are usually dibutyl phthalate, camphor, and triphenylphosphate. There are also different pigments or agents that are used for the color, as you'd expect. Now, 
Lots of non-toxic nail polishes advertised as being free of the five chemicals, the top five biggest offenders. These are the five chemicals that non-toxic nail polishes don't have in it. Dibutyl phthalate. Remember I said the plasticizer that avoids chipping and cracking. This is connected to contact dermatitis. That's an allergic skin reaction. But we also worry about the reproductive toxicity of it. What else? Toluene. This is also connected to the contact dermatitis, but not only the skin, it can actually affect the central nervous system in the kidneys. What else? Here's two more, formaldehyde and formaldehyde resin. This is actually recognized as a class one carcinogen by the IARC with sufficient evidence that it causes cancer to humans. It can also cause contact dermatitis. And the last one being camphor. Again, contact dermatitis can affect your skin, causing an allergic reaction, but the oil in itself at high doses or high enough doses can cause a disrupt to the nervous system. And I actually like to add a sixth one, triphenylphosphate, TPHP, which is also a plasticizer used much like the phthalate I just mentioned. So naturally, the next question is, if you use nail polish, can these chemicals absorb into your skin, into your body? The answer is yes, but we don't know exactly how much. What's theorized is that these solvents used in nail polish can create the absorption of these chemicals. And under the nail, there's a rich network of capillaries that can move through the circulatory system. Now, there was a study from Duke University published in Environmental International, and it was on that chemical that I mentioned, triphenylphosphate, TPHP. This potentially hormone and fertility disrupting plasticizer and flame retardant chemical I just mentioned, which prevents the chipping, was found to be absorbed in the body. Participants provided urine samples before and after applying one brand of nail polish containing 0.97% of TPHP by weight. And diphenylphosphate, DPHP, this is a metabolite of TPHP, was measured in the urine. And check this out. It was found to increase nearly sevenfold, 10 to 14 hours after painting your nails. They adjusted for any other routes of exposure, including inhalation, and they found that dermal through the nail, through the capillaries, and through into the circulatory system was how people who get their nail painted were being exposed to this chemical. And this was actually repeated with similar results in nail salon workers. So this was an important study because it's one of the first in a long time that we're really seeing that, yes, chemicals from nail polish do get into the body. It's not staying in a medium that's not being absorbed. It's actually going through the nails into the capillaries. Again, we don't know how much and how long over time, but we do know it has the capability. A seven-fold increase in 10 to 14 hours after painting your nails is significant. Now, before I go into this product review, I want to end on my opinion with acrylic. I actually believe acrylic nails are the worst of all nail treatments, even more so than gels. And I just talked about gels and the UV light and my concern with it because it can cause nail damage, allergic reactions, things like eczema, etc. And it's from the methyl methacrylate. And this is what's causing the nail damage, but it also contains chemicals like benzene and formaldehyde, which we know are carcinogenic and have enough evidence to show that it does cause cancer. Again, we don't know how much it's being absorbed, but it's something to keep in mind. There's also a risk of bacterial and fungal growth between the gap and the nails. And over time, the more the nails are being buffered and broken down, the more the nail bed becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. So acrylics like gel UV exposures and even conventional nail polish exposures get worse over time with the more frequency. And again, we don't know exactly how much is being absorbed, but part of the theory as to why these, some of these chemicals may become absorbed into the body is because of the solvents that are in the nail polish. It's sort of the theory right now um, as the reason why we're absorbing some of the chemicals that shouldn't be absorbed. So it's something to really think about, especially if you're using your nail polish. But even more important is making sure you're using a quality one 
Which brings me to the product review. Let's go over the best and the worst for nail polish. Okay, so let's figure out which brands we need to stay away from and which are nail friendly. Remember I mentioned TPHP, the plasticizer and flame retardant. And according to the Environmental Working Group, they found that over 1,500 nail products contain this chemical, including the big ones like Sally Hansen, OPI, Wet n Wild, Butter London, Revlon, Milani, Spa Ritual, Orly, The Bomb, Nuance Maybelline. Beauty without cruelty, that's just to name some. They found that TPHP was abundant more in clear polishes versus colored. Aside from TPHP, just stay away from these nail polishes. There are so many better brands that don't use any of the big five chemicals that I mentioned. And some of these brands are even moving towards big 10, big 12, big 20. Forget all those companies. If you have them in your bathroom, open your closet, reach for the little glass bottle, take a look at it wave goodbye to it and put it in the garbage because we're moving on to better quality. So now if you're interested in some nail polish brands that are clean in my research, here are some of them that I approve. Now, I put them in different tiers. Let me say this. Every single nail polish that I mention is exponentially better than conventional because every single nail polish brand that I'm going to mention removes those big five and even the six, the TPHP, and some of them even go further. Now, I broke them down into tiers because... Some of them are still using those solvents, and solvents are necessary in most of the nail polishes, although some are using water-soluble uh, nail polish, which I actually prefer. But still, with that said, none of these brands are bad. If you have them in your bathroom, you don't need to throw them away. But here are some of the ones that are on the lower tier. Ella and Mila, Mineral Fusion, LA Colors, Coat, Manicurist Paris, 100% Pure, Karma Organic, Olive and June, Huella, and I didn't find anything about Zoya, although that was highly requested. The website was really crappy. It didn't show me much about the ingredients. But the ones that I just mentioned are all similar formulas. I actually like them, but I found some better ones. Here's the middle tier ones. These don't contain any of the nasties, just like the lower tier ones, but these tend to have generally less ingredients. And for me, less ingredients is better, especially when the ingredients in here are much more benign. These also do contain solvents, but again, some of these actually added in some botanicals and dyes, which are less harsh to the nail. London Town and Nail Aid. These are pretty good ones. I like them as the middle tier. Now, for my top tier, these are like the other ones that I just mentioned, free of the top of the top 5, 10, 15 nasty chemicals. I love that the companies are taking an approach with the non-toxic angle on this. These top ones I actually like because they don't have the toxic smell, right? That really strong smell of nail polish because these are water-based. And I love that these top tier ones keep their ingredients as short as possible, especially again with benign ingredients. They're cruelty-free. Many of the ones I just mentioned are, but cruelty-free always matters. And I really like that they're not solvent-based. That's the big thing for me, for the top quality ones. I mentioned in the Knowledge Bomb that the theory is behind the solvents being the thing that drives the absorption of the chemicals. Now, if it's a formula that doesn't have many harsh, harsh chemicals, then that might be okay. But still, solvents tend to be harsh on the nail as it is. So here are my only two top nail polishes that I found. Piggy Paint. Is one of the best ones I found. Very little ingredients, clean ingredients, no solvents, easy for kids. If you have kids, this is a great one. If you yourself want to paint your nails, this is a great one. The other one that I found that I was particularly impressed with was tomato. 
Another one of the top ones, one I never heard of, actually like the name is pretty cool, but they're non-toxic across the board. And again, they're not using any nasty solvents and they're really intentional about what they put in their products. It's a really short ingredient list. So check out these two, especially if you're painting your nails every day. Now, if I didn't mention a brand that you're interested in, at the very least, make sure the brand that you're interested in doesn't use dibutyl phthalate, toluene, formaldehyde and formaldehyde resin, camphor, and triphenyl phosphate. Other pluses are things like BPA, xylene, fragrance. You don't want any of your nail polishes using that. Now, there's a whole nother box that we didn't open. It's the heavy metal box. A lot of these colors, right, the pigments used are can be theoretically rich in heavy metals, but we're not going to go there. But if you are interested, talk to your company. Talk to the company you want to support and take that extra step and go into the heavy metals. If you use nail polish and you're using it every day, see a lot of you have been using it since you were teens, right? If you're using it all the time, make sure you're having a quality nail polish over time. Remember, just because you may paint your nails once, it ain't going to hurt you. Two times ain't going to hurt you. Several years might not even hurt you. But if you're doing it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years of painting your nails, you want to make sure that you have a nail polish that is not dripping in your bucket over time and filling it up over the years. Very important. Something easy we can remove, even if it's a little more expensive. Get yourself some quality nail polish. Check out the brands that I mentioned. If you have any questions on your nail polish, let me know or shoot me a DM. But I just had mentioned the five things, six things to look for. Do the research yourself and see which one works for you. If you want to put on clothes that represent and empower itself if you want to put on clothes that feel good because they're sustainable, because they're organic. Get yourself some Heal Thyself merch, hts.today. I want you to check out the inventory, see something you like, and support the show. As always, thank you for rating, reviewing, and subscribing, sending this to your loved ones. I thank you all if you were listening from episode one, or if you just started listening. All the love to you. Have a wonderful, beautiful week. Go hug someone. Go hug a stranger. Go tell them you love them. Be a weirdo, but hug someone from your heart and change the world. <laughs>